When I think about this theme of lost and found, I go back to something that happened to me in second grade when I first experienced really being lost and found. Now, I grew up in uh, Buena Park, California, and I lived in a house two doors down from my elementary school. So I literally had a 50-yard walk, 50 walk every day to and from kindergarten and first grade. So I could never tell the story to my children about how I walked six miles to school each way uphill in the snow. Totally denied me. So I used to take this path every day, and it worked out fine. But in the early 1970s, when I was going to elementary school, there was a huge demographic shift in the United States, and the number of young people and children had declined significantly. So much so that in California, where I went to school, there were schools that were closing, and in many cases, those school districts were selling those school properties. And my school happened to be one that was sold. And so after only two years of going to school, kindergarten and first grade, I was faced with having to go to another school. So when that school year started in second grade, the school bus picks us up at the assigned location. We get on the school bus, and I go to school. That very first day I go to school, everything's fine, classes are fine. The instructions that morning were very clear. When you leave in the afternoon, make sure you get on the same bus you took when you got here. So you can see where this is going to go, right? So I walk out after school, second grade. I see the bus that has the same number on it. It's the same bus. It is literally the same vehicle that I took in the morning. But there was a little sign in the window of the bus that morning and in the afternoon that I did not see that designated where that bus was going to go. I got on the wrong bus. So I, I got on the right vehicle, but the wrong route. So as the bus takes off, we're driving all over, and I'm looking around going, this does not look familiar to me, until eventually the bus has only one passenger left, and that was me. So that was alarming, not only to me, but it was alarming to the bus driver who expected to have an empty bus at that point. So there was some talk on the radio, some chatter back and forth with the dispatch, and the next thing you know, the bus goes back to the school where I had originally gotten on it like you know, an hour or so later. When we pulled up at the school, there were my mother and father in perfect textbook form. My dad is just reading the riot act to the principal. I can see it from the window of the bus. And my mom is weeping in tears that her boy has been lost. And so when I got off the bus, my mom gave me a hug, practically strangled me, and all was well, and I went home. That was one of my earliest experiences being lost. But I have to say, those of you who've been lost, and sometimes in much more desperate situations than that, it's good to be found, isn't it? There's something about being found, a deep, deep sense of relief in being found. And over the next several weeks during Lent, we're going to be focused on this by talking about some parables of Jesus that have to do with being lost and then found. Today's parable is commonly called the parable of the sower. That's actually somewhat of a misnomer because the character in the parable only appears one time and it's at the very beginning of the story and we never see the sower again. So we'll talk maybe about a better name for this parable in a moment. 
parables are contextual teachings of Jesus designed to explain a spiritual truth. Contextual teachings of Jesus designed to explain a spiritual truth. They're contextual because Jesus uses the images and metaphors and the lifestyle and everything of the context he's in to deliver the parable. So unless we spend some time thinking about how we would hear that parable when Jesus told it, we're going to lose some of its meaning. So they're contextual, but they're always designed to convey to us a spiritual truth. And that's what we're going to focus on today, is the spiritual truth that comes in this very highly contextual formula that's called a parable. It's a way of telling a story that has a truth in it. And the parable today is commonly called the parable of the sower. And it outlines a world of challenges for us. And so I would like to suggest that there's three different challenges, and they have to do with the three different kinds of seed that you hear about in this story. The first part of the world of challenge is this, is that cynicism becomes a danger. Cynicism becomes a danger. So we might look at this parable and say, this sower is kind of foolhardy. He just goes out throwing seed around all over the place. Some of it goes on the road, some goes on the rocks. It's all over the place. It's a huge mess. It would be easier just to say, this is just going to be a waste of time to throw seed all over the place. So maybe we should just I don't know, forget about it. Let's just not even go do it. Let's just give up on it and, you know, surrender it. So with all of these challenges, facing the seed, the farmer, what it means to be a farmer even in the first century, one might say, why don't you just find a new trade? Do something different. This work is incredibly difficult. This is a form of cynicism that's even in the story, but it's also in our own time. And cynicism is a great threat to us, I think. It's the supreme confidence in nothing working right, which ultimately leads to a form of hopelessness. And hopelessness, in this sense, is a bit self-absorbed. The self-absorption here is that the cynical outlook says that anything I do say or believe is not going to shift any outcome. And so it's, got to, it's a hopeless enterprise for me. So why should I bother doing anything if it's actually not going to have any good effect? Cynicism is this hopeless belief that things just simply can't change. But what's interesting is Jesus tells the story, even with the seed falling on the road, there's no surprise here. There's no surprise at all in hearing about a farmer who went out to sow seed and a bunch of it landed on the road and then the birds came and picked it up and ate it. Now Jesus is going to go on later in this chapter and interpret what this parable means. And we particularly didn't put that in the scripture reading today because I think sometimes it's important to just sit with the parable a little bit, soak in it before we get to what Jesus's explanation of what it actually means and how we might interpret it. So if we soak in this parable for a little bit, we can see that this farmer seems rather reckless going out throwing seed on roads and thorns and rocks and all over the place. So if there's all of these issues and all of these problems, why bother? And this is where cynicism gets us in that it, it somehow inculcates us into thinking that no matter what we do, it's not going to make much of a difference. And so I like to think of it this way, that it's a little bit like a protest, but it's a protest about nothing in this sense, in that the, the cynical point of view is that 
nothing's going to change, nothing's going to be different. So people go out and protest that nothing's going to change or nothing be different. Nobody does that. So being cynical is actually taking an action about nothing. And the action is actually inaction. It's the refusal to engage because we don't think it's going to make any different. It's an action lacking an outcome. So when we refuse to act, pray, and live because of cynicism, it might just be like the bird snatching up the seed, as the story is told. With cynicism, we don't even get started. Cynicism is an argument to do nothing, and it just vanishes. And according to the interpretation of the parable, Jesus is going to tell later that cynicism, that snatching away of the potential, that is the work of the devil, to snatch it away before we even give it a chance, an opportunity to let it grow and even to thrive. So that's one world of challenge. Another part of this challenge that we have to face is that there's no way to remove obstacles. According to the sower, according to the story, the sower goes out and throws seed all over the road and it lands in a bunch of rocky places as well. And this is actually the only time the sower is mentioned in the story. So we might think about calling this the parable of the seeds, the parable of the soils maybe, or maybe even the parable of the abundant harvest. Hold on to that, we'll get to it. Now, my first time seeing a field of grain growing is when I moved to Oklahoma as a teenager. And if you're from any place like uh, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, even the northern parts of Texas, and even other parts of the country, this is a very familiar sight, especially in the late summer, that as the wheat that's been planted grows, or whether it's barley or something else, it's green, and then it eventually turns brown like this, and then it's harvested. Fields and fields and fields of infinite grain growing. It's quite the sight if you've never seen it before. And I remember seeing this for the first time and then watching how the farmers planted these fields. They would go out into these large fields and the first thing they would do is plow them. And after the field was plowed in a defined area with fences around it, then they would plant the seeds in a somewhat organized sort of way and then after a number of months, you would get this. But in the time of Jesus, they handled planting a bit differently. When they wanted to plant seed, especially for grain, farmers would go out with a, a pouch of seed, and they would grab handfuls of it and throw it like this. And in the throwing of the seed, it went all over the place. Some of it went on a road, some of it went into rocky places, some of it went into thistle, some of it went into good soil. After the seed was sown... Then the farmer would come through and plow the field and then turn the soil over on top of the seed. In our way of doing this, plow first, sow seed. In Jesus' day, sow seed, then plow. Now, you can't plow where rocky soil is. That makes it impossible. So some of the seed is going to land in a place that is inaccessible to the plow. So it has a little bit of soil in and around all the rocks, but it pops up very quickly but because it has no depth and it's not around all the other wheat that's been planted, it dies quickly. These are obstacles. Obstacles to the kind of work that needs to be done. Even if you're a farmer in Jesus' day that has rocks in his field, he has to gather the wheat around all those rocks. Whereas in a field like this, the rocks are all cleared. 
so that the wheat can grow. There's no way we can eliminate risks. It's impossible. And so what often happens sometimes is that we choose to do nothing because of the obstacles that we face. It's a different kind of cynicism. Cynicism is grounded in this this worldview that no matter what you do, nothing's going to change. When it comes to obstacles, it's, it's a different kind of response in which we say these obstacles are too big to overcome. It's a question of resources. I don't have capacity to get over this obstacle. So rather than trying to do that, oftentimes we choose to walk away. And so some of the obstacles we face in our lives are massive at times, whether they be problems with our health, difficulties economically, broken relationships that exist, even at times the sense of spiritual disconnection and alienation and aloneness that we feel at times. These are obstacles that are here, and sometimes the choice to not confront them or to not take action in their face really allows us then to not experience the fullness that God has for us because we just don't think we can overcome that which is in front of us. So we might say it this way. When we say that the risks are too great, we're actually acting out of fear. Fear that the obstacle can't be moved or be changed, so we kind of then lurch from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Oftentimes, like when I'm looking at someone we might be interviewing for a job sometimes, and I look at their resume, and I see that they've hopped from job to job to job to job to job very quickly without a lot of depth or duration, it's almost indicative of the fact that wherever they were and they were working, they hit an obstacle and decided that rather than face the obstacle or overcome it, whether it was vocational or something else that they skill they needed to develop, it was easier to just move somewhere else. And then what happens is it ends up being a wash, rinse, repeat cycle that we just kind of keep moving from thing to thing to thing, even though the obstacle we need to face is sitting right in front of us and we need to deal with it. When our refusal to act pray, and even live are born from fear, we might be like the shallow soil where the seed that God brings has no enduring chance. But then there's a third threat, a third challenge, and it's analysis paralysis. Now, farmers, when they would go out to sow with this grain in the first century, they knew that thistles would grow with the grain. And we're going to talk about this next week but that at the early stages of their growth, the thistles or the, the weeds or the thorns look almost identical to the wheat. So when they're first planted, they're very difficult to tell apart. But by the time you get to the harvest, they're easy to sort. They're very easy to tell apart and can be taken care of at that point. And so what happens oftentimes is our refusal to take action or our refusal to confront or our refusal to change or transform is born out of analysis paralysis. It's easier to separate the weeds and the wheat at the harvest than it is up front. But sometimes we think that we can't take any action until we actually get there. Study and reflection can help us make decisions. But often our need to know everything and have certainty keeps us from action. We're just not sure We can follow what God wants us to do. And so yesterday I was looking through the email box and in popped a very timely entry from my favorite blogger, Seth Godin. And he spoke to this very subject. Listen to what he wrote. 
He said, as we continue to face difficult choices and work to make things better, it's quite likely that the alternatives being presented aren't ideal or even appealing. Many organizations and communities are stuck because none of the above is the majority's opinion or perhaps the desire of those in power or those with simply loud voices. But unless you're willing to acknowledge that you're simply being difficult, none of the above comes with the responsibility to describe a path that's better. Because forward is the best option. Let's go with the one that makes the most sense. And if you don't have a better plan, you should be responsible enough to back the one that's most likely to work, even, especially, if you don't like it. When we refuse to act, pray, and live out of our lack of certainty and fear, we might be like the seed thorn in, sown in the thorns and thistles, and it chokes the life out of us. So some questions to wonder about. How is your life or circumstance challenged in some way, and how are you responding to it? What kind of challenge are you facing today? Is it job? Is it family? Is it relationship? What challenge are you holding or carrying today, and how are you responding to it? And the next question might be, what role do cynicism, fear, and caution play in your everyday life? How much are they governing factors of who you are and how you live? And how can you name these better this week? All of these seeds are, have, have challenges as they go forth. But if Jesus tells this parable, friends, nothing Jesus has said to this point is surprising. Everybody who sows seed knows this is exactly what happens. You throw seed all over the place in the hopes that it begins to grow, and some of it lands on the road, some of it lands in the rocks, and some of it lands in the thorns. A lot of times people read this parable and think that this is a really reckless farmer. Not true. The farmer's doing exactly the thing that all farmers did back in that day. They threw the seed out there, even with all the risks that were potential in that situation. So let's talk. Let's shift gears for a minute. Let's talk about how we face some of these challenges with a sense of hope, if, if you uh, don't mind. So one of the things we have to understand is when we face challenges with hope, number one, we understand the risks. We have to know exactly what's at stake. Not the problems, but the potential. And here's what I mean by the potential. Jesus gets to the end of the parable and he says, but the seed that landed on the good soil returned a harvest of 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, right? But in Jesus' day, any farmer who sowed seed if they had a sevenfold return, that was great. If they had a tenfold return, that was a lifetime bumper crop. But when Jesus says you'll have a thirtyfold, sixtyfold, or hundredfold, that's the point at which everybody said, hey, wait a minute. That never happens. And this is the, the point of the parable is not the risks that are there, but the potential that's there. That if we allow God to move and work, even in the midst of our cynicism, our sense of fear and uncertainty, if we allow God to move in our lives, we can see 
something like that begin to happen in unique and powerful ways in our own life. But it's going to require us taking an action. It's going to require us doing something. There's mysterious work in this gospel that works alongside all these risks. Now, just so you know, I reject the health and wealth gospel. And the reason I do is because I don't think this works in a cause and effect relationship. So if, I've, if I'm a believer in the health and wealth gospel, you would give the church $10, God would turn it into $100, and I would magically appear before you next week in a very fashionable suit with jewelry. That's not how this works, friends. But what God is inviting us to do is to see a world in which all of these risks are here. All of them. The road, the rocks, the thorns, all of it. And yet, engage in the work anyways. Take a step anyways. Now, last Sunday, I shared with everyone what we were going to be practicing in the life of our church during this Lenten season, a set of spiritual disciplines centered around prayer. And so we put out a prayer book, and there's copies of them in the narthex, a guide to Lent, and in it is a prayer for every day of the week. In it is an invitation for all of us to pause at 2.23 in the afternoon every day during Lent to pray, to pray for our church, to pray for our city, pray for the world. And then there's a third part where we suggested that people might want to consider embracing John Wesley's historic fast. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, practiced a fast from Thursday at sundown till Friday at 3 p.m. And then we talked about how you could do different things during that fasting period. Maybe you don't eat food. Maybe you don't eat a certain kind of food. Maybe you take up a new activity. My wife was sitting right over here third row back. And when we were talking about fasting last week, somebody a couple rows behind her said, is he serious? When we were talking about fasting, is he serious? Let that sit for a moment. The Jesus who tells us to fast, Christians for centuries who fasted in ancient ritual, a posture of prayer, of desperation before God. Is he serious? Yeah, I'm serious. I'm very serious. Part of the seriousness flows from the fact of what the parable is trying to teach us is that if we just take the the step of moving toward being uncomfortable, trying something different, engaging in a new activity, trying something that's hard, looking at an obstacle and wondering about how God might overcome that if we just take one step toward it, if we just take a little step, whether it's fasting, an act of service, some kind of form of compassionate rendering to other people, an act of justice, an act of mercy, all the virtues we've talked about over the last couple of months, just anything, what might God do? 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. It was at this point that in the parable, Jesus makes no sense because now he's talking about a God who can multiply and bless in a way that we could never imagine. Now, it's not farming anymore. This parable is about something completely different. And it's not about birds, rocks, and weeds. 
It's about an infinite God that has potential. Understand the risks. The gospel is real. It's in community. It's in relationships. Brian, a few moments ago, talked to you about the part that moved his life, that shifted his experience of God in the life of this church. Wasn't that he heard a compelling argument one day and he goes, hmm, I think that's right. No, he got engaged in relationships with people and God moved through those people and changed his life in that community. That's what makes the difference. That's the risk of the potential that might happen when we allow God to work in that space. So facing challenges with hope, number one, is about understanding the risk. Second, it's about taking defiant action. Now, defiant action takes a bunch of different forms, which this is a whole sermon in itself. Sometimes waiting is an action. That's the posture of prayer. That's what we're inviting everybody to do for Lent. Pray. Discerning, that's a posture of wonder. The posture of what if? How could this be? What does that mean? Or even taking action, which is the posture of movement. All three of those are in action. So number one, understand the risk. Number two, take defiant action. Number three, trust the outcome maker. You see, God is the only one that could make a harvest like that. All the people Jesus is talking to, no one's ever seen a harvest bigger than tenfold in their entire lifetime. And here's Jesus saying it's 30, 60, 100-fold. It's mysterious. How did such a harvest come to be? My friends, there's no harvest unless somebody sows. Seed has to be planted in order for there to be a harvest. And how we invest to make that change might look impossible at the time, but it takes place one life at a time. So I have a couple questions for you. Describe a life situation today where you feel a bit lost. And what might be the best response? Remember those three things, waiting, discerning, or acting? Where do you need to release control of that outcome? That's the hardest question for me to answer because I love to control outcomes. And the last one is, how are you giving God a chance to do something abundant? To be honest, friends, um, if we think we're pretty awesome and pretty great, then God can't be very great because we've already taken the role. But if we step into a place of desperate faith and need and longing for Jesus, God will do the heavy lifting. We just have to take the first step. Where is God calling you today to take hopeful action? Where is God inviting you to mend relationship? Where is God asking you to look at a diagnosis differently? Where is God challenging you to use your money differently? How are you being called and shaped? And what kind of risk might that mean? That's big stuff. 30, 60, 100 fold. So let's commit that to the Lord this morning in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this great promise of this scripture, this great promise of abundance, that there is a way, a very clear way you invite us, Lord, to live into a life of faithfulness. That good soil with good seed in your hand 
yields an unimaginable harvest. So show us how to be people of that kind of faith, putting all of our trust in you. Thank you.